Um, it's good to be here with you. Uh, thank you again for having us. Um, we've appreciated all the fellowship together. Um, I'd like to turn to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23, and maybe we could just again lift our hearts to the Lord. Our Father, we're grateful for the privilege of the songs we've been able to sing. We're so uh, thankful for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that has joined us to you and has joined us together. We ask now that as we look into your word that you would minister Christ to our hearts, uh, that you would by your uh, spirit uh, help us to understand encourage us, we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. So we've been thinking of um, the, Levit- the Levitical feasts, uh, the Feast of Jehovah. Um, last Sunday we tried to um, join join the feasts, not just Leviticus chapter twenty three, but see how they were connected to um, connected to Genesis, right? Connected to Genesis, uh, connected to John's Gospel. Uh, we had suggested that. Uh, as, is, as in Elwood McQuaid's uh, book, The Outpouring of the Spirit, which is his commentary on the Gospel of John, he says that a, it's not just a way to understand John's Gospel, actually, he said it's foundational, you know, in working through John's Gospel, it, understanding how the uh, feasts, the seven feasts fit. Uh, he says it's a help. He says um, 75%, or I think a little over 75% of John's Gospel is in the context of the Feast of Jehovah. Um, we saw how uh, Genesis, that Genesis connects the feast. We had this verse in uh, chapter 1, verse 14, that um, the sun, the moon, uh, are uh, for signs, first for signs and then for seasons. That word for seasons is the same word as for feasts. And so uh, uh, we said that August Van Ryn um talks about the appointments of God, that these were actual appointments in, in Israel's economy. Now, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 16, in Deuteronomy chapter 16, it said that uh, it was commanded of the Lord's people, uh, commanded of the Lord's people that, that the uh, men appear in uh, Jerusalem three times a year. Now, we know that uh, it wasn't just the men, that, hey, families went. But um, sometimes it's men that need the exhortation. Now, um, the balance here is pretty good, I think. But hey, in lots of places, uh, the sisters in the work of the Lord, you know, they're three to one or four to one uh, in, in the lives of men. And so it was men who needed the exhortation to go. And we have that. We have that foundational principle in the life of the Lord Jesus that, hey, his mother and father and he himself went up as a 12-year-old boy. That's really all you've got from uh, the boyhood of the Lord Jesus is that he and his family went up to celebrate. So Deuteronomy 16 says that um, three times a year. Now, now not to be mistaken that they didn't participate in all the feasts. Like we think, well, maybe which three did they pick? Well, actually, all seven are linked together. So uh, the first three, Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and um, the Feast of first fruits were in a period of time. This was um, three weeks, or roughly speaking, something like that. And so they were to go for that feast. Then they were to go up a second time to the Feast of Weeks, or to Pentecost. That was sort of the next break, right? And so they were to go then, and then they were to go in there what would be civil uh, New Year. Uh, the seventh month, they were to go up and to celebrate the last three. So uh, interesting that... Um, 
in God's economy, he was um, for holidays, right? He was for holidays. He loved holidays. He, in fact, gave his people five weeks right from the get-go. They didn't have to earn that. He encouraged them to have five weeks of holidays. But um, he never thought about having a holiday from fellowship with himself, right? And so, um, hey, uh, we trust that, hey, when the Lord's people go away on holiday, it's not to take a break from the Lord. I mean, that's certainly not what what um, uh, the Jewish economy was about. They couldn't wait, right? They couldn't wait to get together uh, in this holy, uh, it's called in verse 1, this holy convocation or at the beginning of Leviticus chapter 23. So let's just read a couple verses um, to get us started. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feast of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. And so again, we want to emphasize what we had last week, the word holy, used a dozen times in this passage, right? And um, this is this is what the Lord is concerned about. I mean... Uh, uh, we sometimes try to discern what what um, what the Lord has for us. What's our Christian service? Hey, the most important thing that the Lord is doing in the world is making His people like His Son. That's what He's about, right? Christ-like character formed in His people. And so, yes, sometimes He uses service to do that. But um, hey, service is never more important than uh, Christ-like character. And so, holy. Uh, convocations, and he did it in Israel's day, just like he does it now, right? Just like he does it now in corporate fellowship, right? I mean, hey, again, we cannot overemphasize the value of corporate fellowship, that this was foundational for Israel as a nation. And, um, hey, we know experientially that that's the case. Um, You know, uh, this may be hard to to believe, but you know, I've never had a, you know, a falling out with any of my brothers or sisters on Zoom. But hey, if you hang out with me for a bit, you say, hey, he's, he's a bit of a challenge. Uh, even my wife, I know this seems hard to believe, but even she would say that that he's a bit of a challenge to be around. And so, this idea that when we come together, it's this, this rubbing together and rubbing those those corners, they say, or grinding those corners off. And so, we need one another in the corporate. Now, hey. I'm not sure how uh, the future holds for um, for South Florida, it, British Columbia. Already, they're they're talking about. Um, well, it has been for months that that the churches are not meeting together, and so there are some real challenges. Hey, the Lord was about uh, uh, bringing His people together. Actually, uh, Jewish rabbis still say today that. Um, Part of what's helped Israel as a nation, the Jews as a nation, to keep their distinction, and you know they keep their distinction, right? I mean, uh, that's a fact. You can go anywhere in the world and you can meet Jews, right? And they still have that distinction. Hey, they would say, Jewish rabbis say it's uh, the Feast of Jehovah. This is that foundation to their life and to their nation. So holy convocations. Um, The next verse, uh, six days shall work be done. But the seventh day is a Sabbath, a solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. Uh, Verse 4 says, These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. Now, um, we already had this idea from uh, Genesis 1, signs, seasons, appointments, the exact timing. Now, uh, we saw how uh, 
John 1 ties to Genesis 1, and we say that's beautiful. Uh, or uh, trust that's beautiful. I didn't come up with that. There's certainly other brothers who've came up with that. I think it's beautiful. I think how the scripture ties together. But you know, the exact timing of things is interesting as well. You know, that, that these feasts of Jehovah, you know, the first four, right? These have been already, and we could go to the New Testament. We don't have to because you know those verses. Um, they have already been fulfilled. But beyond that, they were actually fulfilled on the exact days. You know, that, that, that scripture uh, is not just generally accurate. It is to the day, you know, and um, uh, this is remarkable to think about. So now, uh, now there's lots of, um, lots of uh, uh, different views on uh, when the Lord Jesus died. But you know, taking the Feast of Jehovah, to me it seems, we know it was the 10th the day the Lamb was chosen. We, we had that read this morning. And on the 14th day is when he would have, uh, the Lamb, the Passover Lamb was slain. Um, the 15th day, the 15th day would have been the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that's in this first section. So uh, we know from John's Gospel, now again, we, we, we know this, that although uh, John is the fourth Gospel, fourth gospel his gospel is not a repetition although he's got all this unique material to himself he always adds to the scripture he always adds to our understanding and so he tells us that the passover in the day of the lord jesus that that sabbath do you remember what he says about that sabbath was different he said it was a high sabbath right it was different wasn't just a normal sabbath it was a high sabbath and so this is how i see it the 14th, uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the Lord Jesus died on the cross. That would be um, 3 on Thursday, okay? That's how I, I understand it. Does everybody agree with that? You don't have to. Because um, uh, hey, some people say Wednesday, uh, some people say Friday. I don't see Friday, how that can work, but I think August Van Ryan actually, or I think... Um, Maybe Leonard Sheldrake. I think in his book he might go for the Friday. But anyways, to me, Thursday, 3 o'clock. Uh, Friday, the Sabbath of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because remember the Sabbath, there was a Sabbath at the beginning and a Sabbath at the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the seven-day period. And so that would have been the Sabbath of the Friday. Thus, John calling it a high Sabbath because there was actually two side by side. Right. So Friday was a Sabbath. Saturday was a Sabbath. And so the 13th, or sorry, the Thursday would have been the 14th, Friday the 15th, Saturday the 16th, Sunday the 17th. Um, so Sunday would have been, the 17th would have been the um, Feast of First Fruits. It would have been the day the Lord Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, um, Hey, what day did the ark come to rest? Do you remember in Genesis 8, verse 4? Like, you read through and, and hey, whatever Genesis is, it's not a historical document. You don't believe that, do you? Um, if you think of reading the Old Testament, it's about uh, 4,000 plus years of history. Right? So just think about that. It's about 4,000 years. And so you've got, you know, 39 books spanning a little over 4,000 years. When do you reach halfway? 
I thought you guys like Bible trivia, Mike. That's what you were presenting. Of course, nobody did answer that question. Genesis 12, that's about halfway. Right, so there you've got over 2,000 years of history. So whatever Genesis is, it itself is not a history book. Um, you know, they say that, um, uh, you know, David Rockefeller's biography was like 500, nearly 500 pages. Uh, he's just some billionaire that used to live in, I think, New York City. You think he had more money than Abraham? What do you think? Well, um, the Bible doesn't call very many men rich. But instead of Abraham, he was rich. So I assume he was loaded. Uh, Abraham traveled with an entourage of 1,500 people that he supplied their living expenses for. And, you know, um, he was content to live his whole life in a tent, not because he couldn't afford a house. He could have afforded to build a city, but the Bible says he was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. So he was content to live as a pilgrim. Uh, hey, you hardly know anything about Abraham. David Rockefeller lived 100 years. Abraham lived almost twice that. I mean, he went to battle with kings. And so really you don't know very much about him. So whatever Genesis is, it's not a history book. So every verse means something. So you come to this verse in Genesis 8, verse 4, and it says that the ark came to rest on the 17th day of the seventh month. What day is that? Well, because of Exodus chapter 12, right? Because of Exodus chapter 12, what happens at the beginning of Exodus chapter 12? that the months are inverted. You know, they had, a, the Jewish calendar was a 12-month calendar as well. And, and so, so, so you have 1 through 12, and in Exodus chapter 12, verse 1, that the seventh month becomes the first month of the year for you. That's what the Lord said. So when the ark came to rest on the uh, 17th day of the seventh month, that's actually the same day we're referring to here at the Feast of Firstfruits. And hey, it's no doubt, it's the very day that the Lord Jesus was raised from the dead, that same day. I say, well, these aren't random. Hey, God's timing uh, is perfect in these things. So um, the appointment, the appointed times, we could see this. And so we read through uh, the first feast, the Feast of Passover, uh, followed by and joined to in my my Bible, the paragraph is linked together, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and so these are always connected together, right? And um, you turn over to Luke's Gospel, and he always had these two joined together. Uh, again, we don't have to speculate whether the Passover is being fulfilled. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, Christ, our Passover, sacrificed for us. So that feast has been fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus on the cross, okay? Then um, it's followed by this first of uh, seven-day feasts. There were two seven-day feasts. This Feast of Unleavened Bread was seven days, and then the Feast of Tabernacles, the last one, was also seven days. Uh, and so it's followed closely, joined together. We've already thought about the 15th day being a Sabbath, um, no work, you have all that. And then you move past that, and uh, verse 9 says, 
And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the, sh- the priest shall wave it, and you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma, and its drink offering shall be of wine one-fourth of a hin. You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. And so Passover, fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, the Feast of first fruits. Uh, No question about it. It's what Paul takes up in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and he links it to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That just how Christ was raised from the dead, Feast of First Fruits, pictured that that's the hope of every Christian. Now, um, these feasts were connected to Israel's uh, agrarian calendar. You know, they were an agrarian nation. They lived off the land. And, of course, they were stewards of the land. It wasn't their land. You remember that. It was God's land. And he let them live there. You remember he put some people out because of their behavior. And he said, Israel, hey, how, do you remember how I put them out because of their behavior? If you act like them, I'll put you out too. And we know that, in fact, he did at different times. And so it's this agrarian calendar. Well, um, the Feast of First Fruits is connected to... Uh, not just with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's also in the agrarian calendar connected with the um, barley harvest. This was Israel's first harvest. So their first fruits recognized the barley in the fields. Now, you remember that you read through the book of Ruth, right? And, um, hey, it's only four chapters. It's kind of hard to work through. But um, in um, the, the book of Ruth, you have both these harvests, right? Remember, you have the barley harvest, and then after that, you have the um, wheat harvest. Well, the barley harvest is connected here with the Feast of First Fruits. Fifty days later, the Feast of Pentecost, um, it's connected with the wheat harvest, right? And so um, that's pretty interesting. You know, you think about, um, for instance, um, John's Gospel, you know, that uh, we said last week that um, only one miracle is recorded in all four Gospels. Do you remember what it was? Feeding of the 5,000. <clears> and so, um, again, we say, hey, what John told us, it wasn't just repetition. Hey, John told us unique things about the feeding of the 5,000, things that none of the other writers actually told us. Now, um, you've heard this said, and 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 I think it's, it's accurate. I like it. Um, Andrew, uh, or others, lots of people say it, lots of brethren scholars say it, but this idea that, that Matthew's gospel was written to the Jews, right? And so, do you think of the um, feeding of the 5,000 and the Lord Jesus as the bread of God? Well, he's the bread of God come down for the Jews, right? Uh, then you turn to Mark's gospel, and Mark presents his message, uh, uh, presents his message to the Romans, 
right? This is what they say. You know, it's a servant servant gospel. You know, Matthew's the king, and Mark is presenting him as the servant, and that's to the Roman world. And and so, the Lord Jesus is the um, bread of God, come down for the Roman world. Then you turn to Luke's gospel, and Luke presents the Lord Jesus as the perfect man, and the gospel is the presentation to the Gentiles, and the Lord Jesus Christ again is the bread of God. Come down for the Gentiles. Then you turn to John's gospel. And who's John's gospel for? Well, I would suggest it's for the world. 78 times he uses the word world. Hey, that's the emphasis. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is the bread of God come down for the world. Now, um, what kind of loaves were they in the feeding of the 5,000? Barley loaves. Who tells you that? John. Um, it's connected with Feast of First Fruits. Um, the Lord Jesus is the Savior of the world. You get that in John's Gospel. Uh, in fact, you read through the New Testament and you continually see this principle that, that the Lord Jesus on the cross on the cross, redeemed the world. It says that. You know, that um, that doesn't mean everybody's going to heaven. We don't believe that. It still comes back to man's responsibility, but hey, we believe everybody could go to heaven. They could. That, um, you know, Paul, in writing to Timothy, uh, that he's the savior of all especially of those who believe, um, that his sacrifice was for all. You know, that, that the world we have in Matthew chapter 13, you know, this great parable um, that, um, you remember in this parable, it said that, that, that the Lord saw this treasure hidden in the field. And what did he go and buy? Did he go and buy that treasure? He went and bought the field. And uh, people say, well, what do you think the field's a picture of? I said, well, we don't have to think. The Lord says in the passage, the field is the world. The world has been purchased. And, and, and so we have this opportunity to, to go out and, and proclaim that Christ died for all, that the penalty for sin has been paid. The Lord Jesus did this. And so you have this pictured in the, the barley harvest. Right, that, that connection, the death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in its context to the world. But it's different in the Feast of Pentecost. Right? It's the wheat. And I would suggest to you that the wheat, that concept is connected to the church. Right? You see that? That's the next one. Let's read it to make sure we've got it. Um, says, you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath. This is verse 15. Uh, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. These are the first fruits uh, to the Lord. And so, um, seeing barley connected with the Feast of First Fruits, 
seeing wheat uh, connected with the uh, Feast of uh, Pentecost, Christ's death for the world, Christ's death for the church. Now, hey, there are distinctions in these things as we work through them. You know, um, uh, as I say, lots have have pointed these concepts out. And so uh, John takes these things up. You know, he has barley, barley connected to uh, the uh, feeding of the 5,000. Does he talk about wheat? So, yeah, he does. Actually has, um, do you remember this verse, the Lord Jesus in John chapter 12? He says, except a corn of wheat, a single corn of wheat, fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, brings forth immeasurable fruit. You know that um, I think that's the, the connection that the Apostle Paul, one of the connections at least that the Apostle Paul is thinking is he says the seed, remember he always emphasizes that the seed, it's not seeds as of many, he says, but seed as of one. That's that corn of wheat. Now, um, barley, wheat, uh, barley in the feast, or sorry, in the feeding of the 5,000, uh, corn of wheat in John chapter 12. Sometimes um, as you move through life, you uh, see illustrations or you hear testimony stories that seem to uh, really help to see a point or a verse come alive. John chapter 12, John chapter 12, this verse, um, this corn of wheat, I'm reminded of a story that... Um, it goes back to 1921. In 1921, a man named David and his wife Svei Flood uh, left uh, Sweden uh, to go to Africa, to the Belgian Congo, to serve the Lord. Uh, they got down uh, to the Belgian Congo, got to the missionary station, met another Scandinavian couple who were also exercised about going inland to preach the gospel and um, see a church established. So the four, the Ericsons and the... Uh, Floods uh, leave the mission station and they travel 100 miles inland. Um, they really struggle to, to, to connect with, with the natives. In fact, they, they meet a village and the village, because of their uh, view on their local gods, wouldn't let uh, David and Slay and the uh, Ericsons stay in their village. So they go up the river, up the hill a half a mile, and they clear themselves a, a clearing in the jungle and build themselves some huts. And and they live there. They fight with uh, malaria. They can't really connect with the village. And this goes on for multiple months. Um, eventually, they say that the uh, the uh, chief of the village had compassion on them, and he allowed a little boy, an eight-year-old boy, to come and sell them chicken and eggs two times a week. And so Faith thought, well, you know, I can't, I can't um, minister in the village, but at least I can lead this boy to Christ. And so the story goes that she did. Uh, some months after that, Svea is uh, pregnant. Uh, at that same time, the malaria is really uh, taking its toll on the Ericsons, and so they leave. They go back to the mission station. So David and Svea continue on there. Uh, Svea gets pregnant. Um, Svea gets pregnant. Uh, she has a bout of malaria. She has a baby who she names Aina. Aina, A-I-N-A, I think as it's pronounced. She becomes Aggie. But, um, and then 17 days after the birth of the baby, Svei Flood dies, goes home to her reward. And so David um, makes a casket, built a crude casket, digs a shallow grave, and 
uh, buries his wife. Uh, he's got a son, two years old, uh, David Jr. He's now got this baby. Uh, and so they said, the story goes, that something snapped in David. And um, he took his little boy and hired a, one of the natives from the village to carry the baby down to the mission station. Uh, he gave the baby Aggie or Ana to uh, the Eric's and says, God has abandoned me. I'm going home. I'm done with mission work. So left the baby, and he went home to Sweden. Uh, eight months later, the uh, Ericsons both died within a week. Uh, people felt they were poisoned. And so Aggie became the property of a, an American missionary couple. Uh, they fell in love with her, and that they were the ones who changed her name to Aggie. Uh, they brought her back to Minnesota on furlough, and then were scared that if they went back to Africa, that maybe they might lose Aggie. So they decided to start a pastoral work in uh, Minnesota, and Aggie grew up, went to Bible school, met a young guy named Dewey Hurst, uh, got married. Uh, Dewey took a, a, a position at a Bible college in Seattle, Washington, and served the Lord there. And one day, in the mail, came a, a Scandinavian missions magazine. And so um, Aggie Hurst was flipping through it, and she comes to this picture in the middle, and it's this picture of um cross in the middle of the African jungle with the name Faye Flood on it. So she goes back down to the college and finds one of the professors who can read this article. She understands nothing about it, and she says, what does this say? And so this article says that um, that this missionary couple came to Belgian Congo or uh, Zaire and and um, died. And before they died, or the mother died, they had a baby. The dad left, uh, led a boy to Christ. That that little boy grew up and became a school teacher in the village. And um, the chief, he convinced the chief to let him build a school. And and uh, slowly, one by one, let all the pupils to the Lord. Um, and so many of the children were saved, and then many of the people in the village got saved. The chief himself actually had become a Christian. And so from that one life, um, 600, the story goes, come to Christ. Uh, two years later, uh, Aggie, uh, Aggie's, uh, their school gives them a trip back to Sweden to their homeland. And so they go back to Sweden and a lot of work, uh, Aggie's able to track down her father, um, meet her half-siblings. Uh, he actually, David, had gone back and married uh, Svei Flood's sister, and so had another family, but was very bitter. He'd become an alcoholic. His life was basically destroyed. And so uh, Aggie asked her half-sisters and her full brother, the David, and there's some reconciliation there if she could see her father. And... Um, they said, you could, but he's, um, whatever you do, don't mention the name of God because he's very, very angry against God. So um, uh, she she goes to her dad's. He's living in squalor. He has no relationship left with any of his family. He's dying. He's had a stroke. He's dying of alcoholism. And and um, and so as soon as he sees Aggie, of course, he starts to cry. You know, I never meant to leave you. I just didn't know how to deal with it, and I'm sorry. And she goes, Daddy, it's no problem. The Lord looked after me. She said immediately he stiffens up. I mean, he says, don't, don't mention his name. He's the one. He's the problem. He's the one who abandoned us. This is why I'm in the shape I'm in. And so um, 
And so uh, Aggie is able to share that story with her dad of that little boy that Faye, his original wife, led to Christ. Uh, story goes that he was restored to the Lord that day, that day and gone into eternity uh, two weeks later. I said, well, that's an incredible story. Uh, if there was no more, that would be enough. But actually, there is more. Uh, a few years after that, um, Svei and her husband are at a missionary conference in Europe, and there's a brother uh, speaking in French, uh, speaking about the work and what the Lord had done in the Belgian Congo, and, and that he, in fact, represented 110,000 baptized believers. And so um, uh, Aggie went up to him after, and she said, I, you know, in, with translation, have you ever heard of Svei Flood? And he goes, Aggie, I'm the boy your mom led to the Lord. And so he invited her back to Africa, and he was able to take her to the jungle where the cross was, where mother died. And then that afternoon, she says that um, her and her husband said that he preached a message in the little church in the village that they never had access to, and he preached from John 12, verse 24. Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it does, the fruit that comes out of that. Okay, so um, the Lord Jesus is always the example in these things. Hey, but that's been the history of the New Testament church. That it hasn't been its prosperity, it hasn't been its prosperity that's given it power. Right? You read church history, you sit down and read... Uh, E.H. Broadbent's The Pilgrim Church, you will see that what spoke, what spoke to people is Christians' willingness to sacrificially give their life for the things of God. Well, that's here. And it's um, in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. That that's what it all pictures. In fact, uh, it's interesting that, that um, the meal in all of these, do you notice that? Do you notice the measurement? in all the meals, it's two-tenths. What's strange about that? Two-tenths. Uh, when it talks about wine, it says one-quarter. But when it talks about the meal, it's two-tenths. Um, well, I, I'm not a math expert, but it's not a simplified fraction. One-fourth is one-quarter, but two-tenths isn't. You would think if it would be simplified, it'd be one fifth, but it's not. It's two tenths. It's always two tenths. What's the significance? Well, the significance of ten for sure is the number of responsibility, right? I mean, it's always the number of responsibility. There were ten commandments given. Two is um, viewing this responsibility from two views, two aspects. You know, and that's the that's the um, that's the principle of scripture you know that the lord jesus in talking about all the law do you remember this that um you know they they said what what's the what's the greatest commandment what's the summary of the law he said love the lord your god with all your heart soul strength mind and your neighbor as yourself he could simplify it to two love for god first love for man 
hey, where did man get off the track? Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. First with God. Chapter 4, that's chapter 3. First with God. And then chapter 4, man. And, and so this is the emphasis, the two tense is the idea, the principle of looking at the perfection of the Lord Jesus. And this is what the Apostle Paul believed. He believed that as people go through the word of God and they see the glory of the Lord, it's revealed in scripture, guess what happens to them? They're changed by beholding him. I'm not beholding the shortcomings and failures in those around us, one another, but by looking at him. And, and so you think of the two tents. I mean, you think of responsibility to, to God first, because it's always to God first, right? Joseph had this figured out. Remember, uh, you think of him before Pharaoh or Potiphar, sorry. Um, you know, he wasn't scared of Potiphar. Hey, what, kind of, what did Potiphar look like? What do you think he looked like? You ever try to picture him? Well, I would suggest that, hey, the fact that he was uh, Pharaoh's bodyguard, he was a beast of a man. <laughs> would you agree? I mean, that was his role. He was, he was um, Pharaoh's bodyguard, so I'm assuming he looks like everybody's bodyguard, right? They're beasts. And, and so, um, and so uh, his wife makes a play for Joseph, and Joseph says, um, how could I do this uh, great sin against Potiphar? He says, against God. He was more afraid of the Lord than he was of Potiphar. And, and so you think of them, it's first to God, and then man. Hey, what gospel is it that tells us that the love of the Lord, the love that the Lord Jesus had for first God and then for man? Well, that's easy. That's John's gospel. Um John 14, I love the Father, says the Lord Jesus. And then a few verses later, the next chapter, he says, greater love hath no man than this, than he would lay down his life for his friends. So he loved his father first, and he loved his fellow man secondly. And so then as um, uh, one brother says, he um, went to the cross and he died for them both. He died for the father. And he died for us. You say, well, that's a bit jarring. He died for the Father. Yeah, he died for the Father, uh, for the glory of the Father. And so, um, hey, we're glad to be recipients of this salvation. We're glad to preach it and proclaim it to the whole world. Would the Lord Jesus have died if nobody got saved? Would he? Yeah, he would have. He would have died for his father. But we're thankful, hey, that we've entered into this. And so, hey, these things are laid out in the feasts and they're connected to all scripture. It's not just Leviticus chapter 23. There's lots that can be connected together. But our time is gone. And Mike said, whatever you do, don't go over. <laughs> Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for the Lord Jesus. We're thankful for how your word uh, shows to us him. We're um, grateful that 
the Spirit of God, your Holy Spirit, does lift up the person, your Son, and we desire to see him and to understand his ways and and thankful that the promise of your word is that when we do that, we are changed into his image. Father, that's our desire, that we might have Christ-like character. That, Father, we might walk even as he walked. We might live even as he lived. Father, thank you for so great salvation. Help us uh, to gladly proclaim it to those who are around us. Thank you for open doors of opportunity, even in the days in which we live. Thank you for the um, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for your saints. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.